What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the bestseller experiment where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark Stay. And I'm Mark DeVoe. And before we dive into this week's episode, we'd like to thank all of our amazing patrons and all of our Bestseller Academy members, who, without which this show would not be rocking and rolling. So thank you to everyone. And if you would like to be a supporter of this podcast, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, maybe, and thinking, yeah, I'd like to uh, I'd like to get some of those extra goodies, then pop over to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support to find out all the great things you can get. Mr. Stay, how are you doing, sir? I'm good, man. I'm good. Had a really good bookshop event at the Little Green Bookshop in Herne Bay last week, which was brilliant. I was there with FMA Dixon, Malcolm Dixon, who's been on the show before. He did that wonderful little book, The the Little House on Everywhere Street. And we were doing this thing about, because we, we were together at an event at Faversham in February, where his book had just come out. We, 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 we were in sort of promo mode then. And here we are about six months later, and we're doing, we did a, a thing about, you know, the the honest full true story of what it is to be a, you know a published author and and really good and get full house standing room only it was really really good so um so yeah so thanks to everyone who came to that and thanks to the little green bookshop for uh for organizing that that was really good fun so uh yeah it's uh it's good i'm basically going on tour mate i, I I'm, I'm uh so there's there was that uh there's a thing i would have just done by the time this comes out so you'd have missed that but i'm doing another thing me and david lee stone you remember david lee stone came on the mm. podcast fantastic episode we're doing a signing at waterstones at westwood cross in thanet on saturday 27th of august uh 12 till 2 and then the crowning glory mr d is our live show we're going to mm. have a, a live show which is going to be wednesday 31st of august 6 30 uk time at waterstones in canterbury we're going to be joined by rowan coleman Penilla hughes the Dean Matheson, Julie Wasmer, and it's to celebrate 400 episodes. But also, because we've been going for so long, we're going to be asking the question, is writing a job for life? In these uncertain times, can an author really earn a living from just their writing? And our authors are going to be sharing their experiences. It's going to be wine, cake, chance to meet the authors, get some books signed, plenty of surprises, and we'll be online. We'll be streaming it online. So if you can't make it, uh, you can join us online. And I'm hoping, Mr. D, I've been talking to my technical boffins. We think we think we, we're inventing a new kind of hologram to beam you in. Um, so, uh, always wanted yeah. to be a hologram. Yeah, help me, Obi Wan Kenobi. <laughs> Do you know what would be nice? I haven't been in the Waterstones for many years, so to be virtually appearing on the wall at the mm. back of Waterstones, though, from would be absolutely brilliant. But yeah, for wait. anyone who's for anyone who's been with this podcast for a long time, this is a really great opportunity to come and celebrate with us. Um, it's a free event as well. We should mention people often have to charge for these kind of things. Well, it's free online. If you come on the night, it's a fiver. But but the fiver is redeemable against any books you buy in the evening. So Perfect. essentially, it's sort of free. Also, yeah. they offer free tickets to students, and I'm not sure how closely they check that. So, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but at least it's not like $300 or something to get into a conference or something it's, like that, right? It's not, yeah. And it's not Bruce Springsteen uh, tickets either, so, you know. No, no, absolutely. <laughs> or Elton John's final, maybe final, well, possibly final tour gig, right? But... Uh, <laughs> Which is kind of wrong. My my daughter actually bought tickets for an Elton John gig in in here in Vancouver for about ninety dollars, which is you know pricey for a student. Mm. But can't, she can't go because she's she's she she's not oh. she's in the country. But now the tickets yeah. are being sold online for like five hundred bucks because they're completely sold out. And she's yeah, thinking crazy. this is bonkers, absolute bonkers. So crazy. so anyway, we're obviously missing a trick there, Mister Stay. We should get we should get Elton <laughs> along to one of the to one of the book signings. But yeah, please do join us. And if you'd like to join us on online as well if you've never been to a bestseller experiment live event we've been doing these on and off actually over the last five years they're a lot of fun 
And the really thing I love about it, it's interactive. You get to ask questions and you might hear a name on the podcast. You, you know, we'll give you, we'll give you a, a kind of a name check as well. So always fun. And most importantly, you never quite know what's going to happen. Uh, for anyone who ever watched that Blue Peter blooper that keeps getting repeated every single time with the elephant, uh, you know, they always say don't ever work with animals and children, but I would also like to add to that technology. So come and just watch out <laughs> for what might happen. It's always good fun. And uh, we always roll with the punches, don't we, Mr. Stay? Well, I'm, I'm definitely going to try and see if we can book an elephant now. You've, um, <laughs> I don't know. We're on the top floor. I don't know if we'll get it in the lift, but we'll, we'll figure something out. But yeah, links in the show notes for all of these, for tickets and, and all the details are there and hope to see you there, folks. Do you know what? If we did get an elephant, you know what it'd be? It'd be the elephant in the room, wouldn't it? Hey. I think I think we better stop right there and oh get boy. straight into this week's interview. Yes, let's which, do it. Uh, so, Mr. Stay, tell us about this week's amazing guest, Christopher Abbott. Christopher Abbott. Oh, I love this one. Christopher is an award-winning author of crime, fantasy, science fiction, horror, but he writes these amazing Sherlock Holmes stories, the Watson Chronicle series, and they've been recognised by readers and peers alike as faithfully authentic to the original Conan Doyle. And he's uh, teamed up with authors like Michael Jan Friedman, Aaron Rosenberg, and he's written a collection of stories called Cases by Candlelight. So he's written nine Sherlock Holmes uh, books. Uh, he's got Midnight Fire in June, and then Cases by Candlelight, a collection of Sherlock stories uh, this August, August 2022. So we discuss writing as a super fan, how to seed the clues in a mystery and the challenges of writing a 19th century character for 21st century readers. Oh, very exciting. Let's dive in and listen to Mark chatting with Christopher Abbott. Christopher Abbott, welcome to the bestseller experiment. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. And it's a pleasure to be here. It's our absolute pleasure as well. And we're here to talk about one, you've got a new sh collection of short stories, uh, Cases by Candlelight, which is the latest in your Sherlock Holmes series. But also there's a fascinating backstory to how you got there and the books that you've written in the run up to that. But let's start with the Sherlock books, because I think, like me, you were a big Jeremy Brett fan in, yes. back in the day. So is that is that where it all started for you? Yeah, definitely. Um, Jeremy Brett's interpretation of Sherlock Holmes was uh, key to the design of my work um, and David Burke and Edward Hardwick's home, uh, Watson, <clears throat> sorry. I think when I first started watching them, um, I hadn't really read that many of the stories. So my, um, my view of it was very different because of course it's one man's interpretation of another man's writing. So, um, and then I came along and decided to write, but I was writing for the idea that I was writing for Jeremy Brett <laughs> rather right. than the original Sherlock Holmes. So um, my interpretation is Jeremy Brett's interpretation, if you understand. <laughs> so yeah, it got a little, and, and now I can't do anything, but when I, when I read, write my dialogue and I read it back, I have to hear Jeremy saying it. Right. If it doesn't feel that that's working, then I have to tweak it and so on. Um, but yes, I think originally uh, I was very much in, into crime fiction um, and uh, I had a sort of two genres, really. I, I, I was very much into fantasy, science fiction on one hand and then on the other crime. And I always had the idea or design that I would try and write my own murder mystery. Um, but I used to watch the Jeremy Brett Granada TV series. I also was a huge fan and still am a huge fan of... Um, David Suchet's Poirot. Mm -hmm. So I think ultimately my my step into that world was a mixture of both of those characters. I wanted to kind of have the uh, the brains of Sherlock Holmes and the physicality of Sherlock Holmes, but I also wanted to have the brains of Poirot and somehow come up with a, a character that, that matched that. And that was early on, but really with the home stuff, I've tried to keep it as true to that Granada TV series. So I've denied Watson a wife and, you know, had him living there and, and not gone down some of the, um, some of Conan Doyle's paths that he, he had laid out. I also have looked at characters from the TV show, Lestrade, um, Bradstreet, um, and even my latest book, which I've just about to publish, Midnight Fire, has Inspector Baines. And some of those characters, of course, were, changed on screen 
to match the actors who played them, um, and so therefore I'm writing for those actors too. So it's 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 an interesting dichotomy between the original Sherlock Holmes trying to be as traditional with your Sherlock Holmes story as possible to capture the vast majority of the Holmes fans who prefer a more traditional take, but also trying to weave in there a little bit of my own take. Mm. To give it a little bit of dynamic, you know. Yes, it be, let's 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 pick that apart. Let's dig a little deeper of that because, um, I mean, the thing it's, it's fascinating that you're basing it on the TV that was based on the books. But of course, that TV was one of the first um, shows to really take Sherlock Holmes seriously. I think up till then, Watson had always been a bit of a bumbling idiot. It was, you know, this, this really, you know, it was, I think was the first TV show to really talk about the, uh, you know, the, the addictions that, that Holmes had his, his, his habits, his, um, you know, the darker side of him. Uh, so how do you, how do you go about writing in that Conan Doyle style? Do you study the style? How did you, and does it help to be a super fan? Do you, do you sort of go in there and, and, and pick it apart? You know, it does help to be a bit of a super fan, to be honest with you, whatever, um, when you're, when you're trying to write in someone else's universe, um, that someone else crafted and, and loved, um, and took very great care to present it in a way that they wanted. Mm. It's, it's important to understand that and important to understand what the author was trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, I read everything that I could. And then I started reading pastiches early on in the sort of late nineties and early two thousands. And I'd already had an idea or concept for a story, but back then you, you know, you couldn't just go ahead and write a Sherlock Holmes story. It's a bit like trying to write a, Star Trek story or a Doctor Who story, you know, there's there's IP stuff that's involved around that copyright and so on. I bought myself this gigantic annotated Sherlock Holmes book. I mean, it is huge. And I read all of the notes from these hugely talented and very well-educated people Um who took these stories apart and actually explained certain phraseology and, 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 and terms that perhaps people don't fully recognize now, but were p- perfectly fine in English back in the early 20th century and late 19th century. So that was really where I went with it. First of all, I think I developed a style based on the idea. I hadn't ever written first person, which was hard. and. Um, an uncle of mine once said to me, don't try and be Sherlock Holmes or Watson, try and be both. And that was the way I started to think. Um, you probably know this. When you get into writing your characters, you start thinking like these characters. <laughs> and I can understand why Jeremy Brett once said that, you know, he wouldn't cross the street to meet. Holmes, because <laughs> such a such a egotistical kind of um, really boorish man. Um, <clears throat> but I liked the the idea that Sherlock Holmes himself wasn't or wasn't deliberately trying to keep Watson in the dark. wasn't wasn't pushing him in a way because he was irritated by him. He essentially was educating as best as he could all the time. He was trying to bring a little bit of critical thinking into Watson's life. And let's be clear, Watson was a medical doctor. He was not stupid. He was highly intelligent. And for his time, you know, very, very much above the norm when it came to observation and deduction himself. I mean, he was capable of seeing things. And perhaps I take a little liberty by giving Watson a little bit more of an understanding of those things. Because I feel like with the, the relationship that they had from the earliest days, of course, he would have no clue. And he he always was always surprised when mm. he would be given the answer to something. And it was shocking to him. But I felt that after a 20 or 30 year friendship, 
those surprises would diminish over time. And and Watson would be in a situation where he would be able to say, oh, yes, you you think that because of this. And, and he would be right. Um, so I, I've. When I did my timeline of the stories, I decided that, that there were going to be some stories where I would have absolutely have the Watson who says, oh, that's how did you how did you deduce what I was thinking, Holmes, to um, to later on where he just isn't at all surprised and certainly raises a little eyebrow at him and rolls his eyes, you know, at that kind of stuff, because it's parlor tricks as far as he's concerned. Switch that to Holmes's point of view and you start realizing that they're not parlor tricks at all. Or their, their, their mechanisms in order to either put people um, at ease so that they come to him for advice and he can show them immediately that he's capable of doing a lot more than the average person. Mm-hmm. And that's the little, oh, I can see by your tread on your shoes that you do X. That sort of stuff is more of a device to allow him to prove to the person that they made the right choice in coming to him. Mm-hmm. Also, it disarms a little bit. Because anybody that might feel like they could get the better of him will suddenly be put off on the back foot. And I felt that that was kind of important. So, yeah, it's very it's very interesting dynamic switching between the two characters. But I do go back and read the stories um, to try and make sure I get some of Watson's verbiage right, to try and make sure that I get some of his characteristics right. Um, and that's hard because now when I look at that stuff and I see how wordy um, the, the Watson was, and certainly some of the more um, obscure words that he would use in, in his own narrative. Um, I've taken the, I made the choice not to be too um, obtuse with the writing because I feel like you're writing a 19th century character for the 21st century, and there are going to be some archaic English in there that just doesn't translate at all or over time has mutated and has a very different interpretational meaning so it's it's a fine balance it is indeed and also you've got to think about pacing as well Mm. a lot of those i mean certainly the short stories were very pacey but certainly any novels written at the end of the 19th century early 20th century the pacing was very different but your audience your readers will be expecting a kind of a 21st century pacing as well How, how do you deal with that um well, my first idea for these stories was to write short stories, um, you know, sort of six to eight thousand word stories and um, and and have the that sort of quick punchy. Um, here's the idea. Here's the here's the information. Here's the uh, going out and sleuthing. And here's the, the result. But what I found early on was that I, I had a larger story to tell with, with these ideas and the short story format just didn't fit me. However, I also was very aware that some of the more, some of the longer stories, and I and I mean stories like, for example, the Hound of the Baskervilles, um, worked best when Holmes was only in them for short periods of time, because if he's there all the time, and so it's a bit like you know why Gandalf the Wizard disappears in The Hobbit for a while, because otherwise, if you have this all-powerful person around you who can solve everything, mm. there's no mystery. And so I had to be aware that that in order to have uh, a longer story, I really needed a little bit more of Watson trying to sort of solve things with perhaps Holmes disappearing off for an hour or a day or whatever, you know, and that, that became a bit of a um, signature of mine where I would get to a point in the story where Watson would recap everything while Holmes is off doing whatever he does. The other thing I thought was important was not to have Holmes come away. See, he has archaic knowledge. He has all this stuff inside him that will answer certain questions without any kind of research or, 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 or anything else. I mean, for example, the inspector finds a cigarette case with the initials JR at the scene of the murder. And the only person in the house with the initials JR is John Reynolds. And so therefore he must be the guilty person. Whereas Holmes knows that JR is actually the name of a hat pin maker in Southeast (laughs) London. And there are only two people that work there. One of them's dead and the other person is the butler. You know what I'm saying? So there's that kind of archaic (laughs) knowledge where it's really important. And of course, (laughs) the other thing is Holmes readers want Holmes to solve the story, right? They want him to solve the story. They don't want someone else to solve it or they don't want Watson to get all the answers right so 
that balance between making sure that Holmes is like this superhero that can see things beyond anyone else, plus the Watsons of this world who are intelligent, but just not to his standard. I think that dynamic makes an, for an interesting um, r- ride along the story. In the meantime, you have Watson observing everything Holmes does, because of course these books or these stories, sorry, are from his perspective. So everything Holmes is doing, Watson is observing. So I thought it was important to make sure that you got a sense of everything he does, but not necessarily the understanding of why he's doing it. Um, but yeah, and then going back to reading the original stories and you find actually there's quite a lot of stories where Holmes says, I'm going out, Watson, I'll be back in the afternoon, and comes back and he says, right, the case is solved. I found this <laughs> newspaper article and that answers all the questions. And I thought... Uh, the critical eye looking back on that some of those tropes that Conan Doyle used in order to get him to a four four or six thousand word story <laughs> meant that he had to just go away and find the answer and come back and say right here, here's the answer you know rather than actually see him and so that's why when I pulled out my stories and and, and outlined them and plotted them out I thought I have to have Holmes physically showing Watson everything that he can't just go away and come back. Yeah, he can get a telegram with some information and so on, but I need Watson to see everything. <clears throat> and, and when he does, he just puts the wrong emphasis on certain things. But then when you get the denouement, when you get the solution at the end, everything is there. Mm. Watson saw everything. And so therefore you see everything. Because I think that Watson is our eye in. You know, he is us. Absolutely, He's the audience. Yeah. He's the yeah. one saying... What are you? What are you seeing, Holmes? What do you? What does that mean to you? you know? When you when you you mentioned earlier mechanisms, the mechanism, and 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 so many of these stories are like uh, you know the Swiss watch; they're so finely constructed. How are you constructing the stories yourself? Are you doing a thing of working backwards, or are you discovering it as you go? Are you very methodical with with these kind of mechanisms? I am methodical because I think that. The hardest thing sometimes is to make sure that you tie up all the loose ends. But if you're not really aware of exactly where you're going to go with the story, if you're not aware of what plot lines you're going to put in, it's very hard or very easy to make the mistake of giving an answer but forgetting that you put X in in the beginning and then you never mention it again. Mm. Um, <clears throat> when I first started writing stories, certainly uh, murder mysteries, I had a process and it was very simple. I would write the, a prologue or, or, or an introduction and then I would write to around 50,000 words. Then I would stop and then I would write the ending. Right. And then I would bridge between that 50,000 word point to the end point, And then I would have an 80, 85,000 word book, but I would definitely have a beginning, middle and end. And I knew my bridging. The other thing I would do is I would then go back chapter by chapter and, and, and seed at least two or three things in each chapter. Um, in fact, in Sir Lawrence Dyes, I put one in the first page you see, which is out of context means nothing, but in context with the ending, means everything. Mm. And um, I think that that's important because one of the things I always wanted or always felt was was important was, well, as an author, you don't want anyone to solve your story. Otherwise, you know, they get to the end and say, well, yeah, mm. that was obvious. Yeah. Or, oh, I don't need to read the ending now. I know what's going to happen. But equally, you do want to give them the mechanism to be able to try and solve it. Mm. So, um when you're writing a large series of books and all they're all independent stories. So no, no one Sherlock Holmes book needs to be read before another, you know, there's mm. no, there might be a, an odd cast member that I've, I've, I've put in that, that might reappear at some point um, because I, I, I've kind of introduced some of my own inspectors, some of my own people that help Holmes and so on, but I did want it to be solvable for some, but what I thought what, what which was the hardest thing to do was I would like it solvable, but that they wouldn't really solve it because the context for the information wouldn't be of any use to them. But the second time they read the book, knowing the end, they would be able to spot all of the little clues that I had laid out 
and and hopefully that would be the second read would be oh yeah that oh I see now you know why why Watson said that or I see why Holmes said you might think that you know and 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 just phrasing and wording but I'm very lucky I have um, a good support team of beta readers who um, are all massive Holmes fans right. um, and in fact a couple of them are you know, New York Times best-selling authors themselves. So that's always handy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I, I send them off to them, you know, prior to publishing and, uh, and get their feedback. And uh, I usually get some, some very helpful notes uh, from a few people. And that helps me to tighten it a little mm. bit. Now you have this sort of methodology and you're, what, eight, nine books into the series. Yeah. Does, does it get any easier? Yeah, you know, it does. I, I think the hardest part is coming up with a plot line that you haven't used, um, you know, two or three books in, that's easy, four books in, it's not too bad. Um, I've just finished the um, seventh, two, three, four, five, six, eighth, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> the eighth book, um, which... Uh, when I look back at all my plot lines, what, what I did was I have a sheet here, which I have the, the chronology of the, the stories, so I know when, when they are, it's set. And then I also have um, a note on the plot, which is the basic plot line, and also whether it was male or female um, who did it, because um, I don't want to keep repeating certain things. You can repeat stuff with Holmes, because I always think that people say, oh, you know, uh, Holmes's overuse of this is annoying, but it's not. It's part of his technique. It's part mm. of his process. So he will say things that are repetitive. He will say, you know, you see everything, but you fail to observe. Mm -hmm. But what I do is I try and sneak it in a little differently. I try and have Watson say, how, I mean, how many times have I heard you see everything, but you fail to observe? You know, <laughs> So I try and put a different spin on it. But I do have this sort of, I, I do get careful with the with the plot lines you know because really when you come to it murder mystery doesn't always have to have a murder in it but you know if you're going to have a murder mystery you've got to be clever with how they're murdered mm. you can only do so many suicides that were murders murders that were suicides you can only do so many thefts of royal jewels you know so there's <laughs> there's a real fine line but it does get easy yeah, because I am so into the characters now. Um, mm. I've been writing these books since 2020, um, and I haven't really written anything else um, for a while. So I've never really left these characters, never got out of the characters. I find it very easy to slip into Watson. Very, very easy. I find it sometimes a little difficult to make Holmes a little bit more dynamic and different in this story. Right. And usually for me, when it's, when I'm writing the first chapter, that's if that's how I know how my Holmes is going to be in that book. You know, right. sometimes he can be grumpy, sometimes he can be ecstatic, and that is that gives me the feel of the book. So, right. Broken Glass, for example, um, was a story where they were on holiday, and you know, and Holmes was miserable because Watson had dragged him out of London to this place in the country and he was just miserable. And then suddenly a murder is appearing and he's all for it, you know, and that kind of gives him his elated moment. And Watson just sighs and says, okay, I'll tag along then, you know, and we get that story. Um, also, uh, Mystery at Grand Home Asylum starts with Holmes essentially telling a client to go away, that there's no, I have no interest in your case or you. And he's quite rude to the guy too. And of course that, ends up being a big problem for him because he didn't pay attention to something. Also, I think I had in the new story, I have Holmes do something where he puts himself in danger. And Watson says, you know, for a man who's so keen on being observing everything, you, you know, you, you just stepped out in front of a bus, you know, stuff like that. So I thought that was keen, but no, it does get easier and it's important to make sure that you don't, that you review your stuff to make sure that you're not accidentally repeating. Mm. Wonderful stuff. Let's start back. Let's go to back to where it all started for you. And uh, as far as I can see, your first full-length novel was Sir Lawrence Dies in 2013. Right. Is that correct? How did yes. you How did you come around to that? And tell us more about that. And how did you get to that? I think that story 
well, that book was the longest book I ever wrote because it was the first one and I'd been writing at it for years. I think mm -hmm. I started it in 2008. Right. Uh, and what I did was I'd watched, I'd been watching the Poirot series more. So the, the Sir Lawrence Dysand uh, book really was my own invention, my own character, my own sleuth. And again, I wanted elements of Holmes, but I also wanted elements of Poirot. And I have to admit that but he's much more of a Poirot-esque figure than a Holmesian figure because uh, he's, a, he's a psychologist, but he's also a brain box and he's capable of putting connections together. He's also very irritating and, and a little um, full of himself and not really likable as a man, even though he, he has a passion for the truth. Um, he's not really that bothered about how he gets there in some regards. He will put, he will not be nice to people, you know, and mollycoddle or anything like that. But what I did with that story was I wrote the dialogue um, for certain scenes first, because I didn't really know at that point how to construct a book. I wasn't sure what to do. So I thought, oh, you know, I'm going to have the, um, the first scene where, you know, with Sir Lawrence Gregson, uh, who, you know, I, I don't think it's giving anything away to say he dies because it's called Sir Lawrence <laughs> dies. But, um, <laughs> Uh, and I had the, 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 the psychologist and then I had the, the inspector, my, my chief inspector, Jab, <laughs> um, uh, Henry Drake, and the two of them having met before. And so they knew each other. Now, the reason I did this was because I didn't want to tell a backstory too much. I wanted to sort of have them. Oh, remember me from that? Oh, yeah, that's nice. You know, and so I had them, too. And what I had was I had dialogue and I had a friend of mine. We worked together where I would do the dialogue for one guy and he would do the dialogue for the other. And um, he helped tweak it and we worked together on that to make sure that they sounded like two different people for first right, of all. Right. And secondly, my guy was Dutch and my friend speaks Dutch. So he was able to give me some of the like nuance of how a Dutch person would say things when they're translating to English, which helped de develop that character. But it took me nine years. And then I moved to America in 2010. And there was a period of time um, after my first visa, uh, I was changing to a permanent residence card. And there was, uh, I, I think, a 30-day or, or even 60-day period of time where I, I was legally not allowed to work until those visas. And so I thought, well, what am I going to do? And so I decided to, oh, there's that book I've been doing. I, I'm going to I'm going to finish it. And, and I did. But by then, I think I had got, I'd read a lot more and realized a lot more about writing rather than write reading yeah. fiction. And I thought, oh, okay. So I got a book on how to write a crime novel or something, you know? Right. And it really was helpful. I mean, it was a how to, I also bought, bought a book of how to write a novel for dummies, which they had brought out <laughs> at the time. And that was very helpful too. So that's how I really did it. I think really as a test to prove to myself, I had the capacity to actually see it through you know uh, i think so many people start writing and then they just sort of tail off and think oh this yeah i don't know how to do this so. and tell us about progenitor which i think is the last book you wrote before you started the sherlock books is that right that's right yeah progenitor was a story i wrote for crazy a press um crazy a press is a conglomerate I don't know, a, 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 a group of authors that came together to create this uh, sort of happy place where they could publish their works. Um, and, and all of these authors are, uh, you know, science, science fiction, Star Trek authors, you know, and, and IP authors, if you like. And um, I had met Mike Jam Friedman at a convention because the songs of the Siren book Essentially, I got a forward from that from a, an actress called Chase Masterson, who was in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. I'd met her. I did a little work for her for her charity stuff. And I asked her one day, hey, would you write me a forward? And she was like, of course I will. And then she had a convention that she was at and she got me a pass to come and sit there with my books and I'd never done that before so right. and through that and imagine this scenario where you're sitting at your table I had one book right so I had boxes of them and I laid them all out <laughs> on my table and I and then 
this person sits next to me. It's Mike Jeremy Friedman with 50 books next to me. <laughs> and that's how I got involved with Crazy 8. So Progenitor itself was really a, a story that I had in mind. Again, a sci-fi story with a little bit of a, a horror twist, but also period. I like periods, though. I wanted it set in the 1930s, 1940s period. And the idea, again, of this catastrophic event on the earth that happens and these people have to kind of resolve it. But it's more about people, more about the interactions, more about the evil in the world that is not necessarily the monsters on the outside, but the actual monsters on the inside, the people you think are going to help and save you, you know, the, the scientists and so on. And so there's a, and also good intentions that turn terribly bad mm. that the people who who come up with these ideas to save mankind. It's that whole old adage, isn't it? You know, look, I might have to kill a thousand people, but I'll save a million and that mentality. So that's where that story came from. And Crazy 8 Press pr published that um, themselves, which was really cool. Excellent stuff. What's coming next from you, Christopher? Uh, I have two books coming out this year so far. I actually have four books this year coming out, but they're all the home stories because that's what I'm working on right now. Midnight Fire comes out in June. Um, that's just another one of the Watson Chronicles. And then in August, I have um, a Watson Chronicle book, but I also have two other authors, um, Aaron Rosenberg and Michael Jan Friedman, who have written um, stories for that. Uh, Sherlock Holmes stories, traditional base ones. So that will be published as a three-man team book. Um, mm -hmm. My first, if you like, Holmes anthology uh, with, with other authors. Um, and then I have uh, another Holmes book coming out in September, and then I'll have one coming out in December. Uh, so that's this year. Wonderful stuff. Christopher, thank you so much for speaking to us today. Uh, an amazing series out there, folks. If you're a Sherlock fan, go grab them right now. And thank you so much for speaking to us and hope to speak to you again soon. Oh, lovely. Thank you so much for having me on. I really like this idea, Mark, of pacing. You know, we haven't talked much about, I mean, we've talked a bit about pacing on the podcast, but this idea of the difference in pacing of books from like the 19th century to the modern day, um, it's a very, it's a very curious thing and i've actually just finished reading the new linwood barclay one of our previous guests oh, yeah. uh, his latest novel i was reading that camping holiday i thought oh i'm like a bit of a fast turner and his books like just they fly they they're fly, like a they rocket fly. Yeah. they're like a rocket yeah. literally and they're you know there's the very short chapters uh but there's there's and there's always a big cliffhanger at the end of each chapter mm. and the pacing of it you literally you, you you're just rushing along with it it feels like you're in a kind of a born movie almost but it's interesting going back like a hundred years. Were books like that? I don't think they were. I think I think pacing wise, they for a start, there wasn't as much competition. So have you read a book? Uh you weren't thinking, oh, I've got to watch that Netflix thing and I've got to do this and I've got to do that. And you know, we lead very, very full lives and people have argued that we have shorter attention spans. Maybe we do, maybe we don't, but I just know there's a lot more attention competition for our attention and also i think that the reader back then wasn't necessarily as well traveled or as worldly so if a character you know in a dickens novel goes to paris most of the readers would never have been to paris so he would take his time to describe paris or or, or the location that that's in the book or they might never have been in a in a particular you know uh Locale, so the the Dickens and Holmes and and uh, you know these authors will will sit down and take their time to describe it for you and really go into some detail. Whereas now we've kind of we've seen these things on TV. There's there's much more of a short shorthand, and I think you are right. We do we're a lot more story literate. I think in terms of we know when the twists are coming, we know when we want those little cliffhangers to keep us on and those little micro tensions, you know, to keep us on the hook, keeps on the hook. I mean, you, you know, you go back and you read uh, Conan Doyle and Dickens and, and those the authors of that era. They do feel remarkably modern, but every now and then they put the brakes on in a way that you think you probably wouldn't get away with that today. And for for a lot of people, that's that's maybe why they like them, you know, because they can they can sort of bathe in them and enjoy them in a way that you might not with with novels today. I mean, I read a lot of um, P. G. Woodhouse, who's some of his books are over a hundred years old now, which oh, 
blimey. Um, but, they're, <laughs> but they're so, I mean, those are short books and they are really punchy and they do not muck about. And, and as Christopher was saying, the Sherlock Holmes short stories are perhaps the most enjoyable version of Holmes because they do not muck about. They, you know, he, he, he identified the, the structure to them. Um, you know, there's a problem. There's, you know, they, they, they get in, they get into it and then there's a solution at the end. You know, they, they don't muck about. So, uh, I've I've sort of you know gone round in a circle there, haven't I? But I do I do think I I do think that um, the reader today is a, perhaps a lot more demanding than perhaps they used to be. And I and I think that's partly because of where we've got to in society. And, and I do think that that things have changed quite dramatic dr- dramatically, really, and drastically. Dramatically, there you go. Dramastic. Combination of the two word. words. One. Stick that one in the Oxford Dictionary. Um, <laughs> dramatically. Uh, so I think it's really interesting that, and that's actually how words are created, isn't it? It's when someone actually screws up and then someone goes, If oh, you say so. <laughs> I'm sure it must. I'm sure there must be a few in a dictionary like that. But, but what's interesting, I'm actually reading another book, nonfiction book, which is um, called How to Do Nothing. And it's mm. actually about, and, and it's, obviously a catchy title but the actual premise behind the book is um about the attention economy it even has a word now the attention economy so all of these social media companies that are are competing for our eyeballs and competing for our time they're part of this new attention economy where they're trying to like keep us like hooked into their world for as long as possible and i think as a result it's interesting because hundred years ago, we didn't have phones. We didn't have the internet. Um, did people read as much? I think they probably read more, possibly. Mm. I don't know. Or maybe not. Maybe we read as much because we're reading stuff on Facebook or reading stuff on Instagram. We're still reading a lot of words. It's just in different, different kind of formats. But I do think that people could indulge more in novels a hundred years ago because they had possibly the, the time, or maybe they didn't, maybe they were working longer hours. I mean, it's all horses for courses, but maybe could, people could indulge more. They could go deeper into a novel in it. And there wasn't that need to have to kind of keep people on the hook um, and, and, and keep them kind of like on that train to the, to the, to the finish line and to the end. I don't know. It's, it's an interesting debate. You know why a novel is called a novel? Because it was a novelty. People thought it was a fad that wouldn't last. And they, <laughs> really? They thought- no, I didn't know that. Hello, folks. Mark, stay here with a fact check check-in. Uh, I was just listening back to JD's fine edit of uh, this week's episode and decided to double-check my outlandish claim that novels were so named because they were considered a novelty. And you know what? I can't find a single corroborating source. I have a horrible feeling that... I read it once on Facebook, and we all know how reliable that is these days. So I suggest you take my waffle with the largest pinch of salt and with a side serving of, hmm, really? That said, if anyone out there can find anything that corroborates this, I'd love to hear from you. Anyway, my apologies for interrupting your listening pleasure. Now, back to the show. Yeah, and they thought it was this kind of faddish way of storytelling that oh gosh, this this will never you know. It's, and uh, but it it hung around because it is a brilliant form for storytelling. I you know I it's difficult to to, to do like for like because across the world there are more literate people. I mean, a hundred years mm-hmm. ago, hundred and fifty years ago, fewer people could read, uh, yeah. so there was more of an oral tradition. Well, know, so perhaps. there was a lot less people on the planet as well. I mean, if you think about. People thinking about, oh, writing's only going to get harder. There's going to be more writers. Well, actually, you know, in 10, 20, 30 years, there's going to be a lot more readers as well because of, you know, how everything's changing. I mean, it's it's it's, it's such a massively complex model. But I I do think that times have changed. And, and one of the things that, that comes up with the intention economy is that people generally, we do have a, a shorter span of attention. In fact, there was one... Um, experiment that people did which showed that we we actually have a shorter attention span than a goldfish apparently now on average which is <laughs> kind of amazing six seconds or something goldfish has but it, it kind of so it makes me wonder that if you're actually sitting down to write a book or sitting down to read a book you know when you're writing a book there's so many more distractions attention like oh ping my phone's gone but when you're reading a book as well new readers um they they need to be eased into this idea of being able to indulge themselves in a book, maybe. 
Um, I don't know. It's 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 all out there for debate and discussion. But I'm just curious if if you have any there's, views there's on a- this listening as sorry as as readers. I want to hear what you think about this idea of attention economy and how it changes the way you write potentially. Sorry, Mark, you were saying. I, I definitely. And now I'd love to hear what people think, particularly across the age spectrum. Because yes. when I was from my sort of teenage years to my early 20s, I devoured books. I was like Pac-Man with books. Yeah, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> now, for a novel, I need to put aside some time. Now, part of that is because I'm writing the blim things. And when I'm not writing them, I'm editing other people's or, or doing, you know, looking at other people's writing. So that writing, those writing cogs are busy elsewhere. So if I if I want to read a novel... I tend to need to put the weekend aside, you know, and just think, okay, I'm going to focus on this and, and nothing else. So there is a, it becomes a deliberate act to, to, to read that book in a way and to focus on it and to read it properly and not to skim through it. I mean, a lot of the books I read in my, there's a reason I reread Hitchhikers and Stainless Steel Rat and Terry Pratchett over and over again is because I used to read them so fast and you'd always miss stuff, you know, skim so through it. Is that as Do well? You know, yeah. There are some people right now laughing at this discussion. The thought of reading, reading a book in a weekend for some people. I was the guy that would take me months to read a book. I would would be the person, and okay, I know there's a lot of us out here, by the way, who has the 20 books piled up on their bedside table. And whenever they go on holiday, they don't bring, right? They they don't bring one book. They bring like three or four books and they're kind of jumping. And do you know what? One thing I've learned is that if you recognize that in yourself as a reader, you're probably going to also have that problem as a writer because you're going to want to start different stories. Mm-hmm. So just 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 for people to kind of like tune into that. If you find that you jump around with books, you're also probably a writer that jumps around with different stories and gets drawn to something new. And it's a discipline that you have to kind of sometimes pull back and say, no, let's just finish that first book and then treat myself to the second book. The last holiday that Claire and I went on together before we had kids, I read something like 22 books. A lot <laughs> Wait, of them were, how, long, how long did you go away for? It's a fortnight. Uh, a lot of them the were very fort- short. The 22 it was, it was books in a fortnight? Yeah. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, crazy. crazy. <laughs> but I just sat by the pool. I just sat by the pool reading. Um, oh, since then. Blissful days, nah, eh, Mark? Blissful close. days. I mean, oh. we, had, we, we had kids. We had kids. Game over, B, man. B, <laughs> B, BK, right? BC, before children. Days were different, weren't they? Oh, yeah. That's, that's amazing. 22 books. Some people haven't read that many books in their lifetime. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. But well, yeah, yeah it's well, very I, interesting. I got friends. I got friends on Facebook who, you know, Goodreads kind of reviewers and, and they're already on book 60 or 70 of this year alone. You know, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's crazy. So. It's crazy. Anyway, oh. each their own. Each, yeah, run your own race, everyone. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, if you get, even if you just get to finish one book a year, you know, that's, that's more than a lot of people do. And some people, and we're in the summer right now, and you, you know, in, in North America, the UK, it's that kind of year when a lot of people get the opportunity just to kind of down tools. And for some people, reading a novel is a luxury. Because, you know, they might, I mean, a lot of the time I'm reading nonfiction, you know, it's work related or development related, whatever, but picking up a book and just taking it away can be the the biggest guilty pleasure for some people. So if that's you and you get to enjoy it, then then love it, Mm. enjoy it, enjoy it. Um, The other thing that, one of the other things that Christopher said, which was really fascinating was this idea, I've not heard this before, was this idea of writing to 50,000 words and then writing the ending and then going back and like working your way to that. And I, I quite like that idea. I think it's brilliant. I think it's a great, great idea. And it was, he said, I knew my bridging, you know, so he goes back chapter by chapter, he seeds little clues. I mean, it's um we, we heard, uh, I forget who told us now, but someone was telling us that, you know, Agatha Christie gets to, used to get to the final chapter and she'd stop and go back and do that. But, um, yeah, I think it's a great tip. Absolutely great tip, particularly for a who done it. And if you know, if you've done it as often as you can as you have as as, as Christopher has, um, then he's got it down to a fine art. So, you know, if you're a thriller writer, give it a go. Let us know how that goes. I'd be fascinated. Yeah, and also works. for people who for people who've been resistant to writing the ending before they start writing the book, which I still think is one of the best ways to go. I like to get the idea of the getting the GPS kind of coordinates like locked in so you know exactly where you're heading and then you can work out all the detours and the roadblocks and the you know the punctures along the way but i think for people that are resistant to that actually really picking any point during the novel and saying okay i've got far enough in now that i think i know i might know the ending and and also here's the other thing that that people forget is that 
just because you've written the ending doesn't mean you can't then change it again. So, you know, if you got to 25,000 words and you thought, I think I might know the ending, I'm going to write it. Well, see if it then turns out that that's what you want to do because you can still change it again. But having some kind of place to aim for, I think is really essential because if you don't, the opposite's true where you just keep writing and writing and writing. And what a lot of people are doing, by the way, if, you, if you're up to 250,000 words in a novel, it's probably because you haven't found your ending yet and you're just searching for it and you keep writing to get to it. So just by putting a stake in the ground gives you more direction and gives you somewhere to aim for and gives you hope that you're actually going to finish that book. This is all, this. We talk about this stuff on the Academy all the time, folks. Central dramatic arguments, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, endings, all good stuff. Uh, it's all happening over there. We go into this. We talk about this a lot. Actually, on that note, Mark, so we should mention and remind people that um, if, if this is the kind of coaching that people want to get into, then the Academy is going to be opening up again in September. So pop over to the website to um, get on the wait list to find out more, academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. Now, the other thing that I found interesting, Mark, is, again, a word you don't often hear an author say, it gets easier. <laughs> it gets easier <laughs> the more you write. I mean, really, that's a rarity that we've heard. People often say it never gets easier or it sometimes gets harder because it's that second, you know, hard uh, second novel or second album as we like to joke but but it's lovely to hear those words it does get easier the more practice the more you refine your process as a writer and christopher's living proof of that i think the other thing is christopher is approaching someone else's character so this is about writing in someone else's ip and what he did initially was a lot of really good groundwork and research you know he talked about getting that annotated Sherlock Holmes which is kind of like going through a series bible of you know if you were to write on a tv show or a comic book or what have you they you're often given a series bible and you know here's the history of the character so you're wading into someone else's uh stories and characters and situations and he did that to the point where he has total understanding of the character and a particular take on the character and this is what I love the fact that he used the Jeremy Brett tv show as a jumping off point, because he knows as a fan, there's a whole raft of Sherlock Holmes fans who Jeremy Brett is their Sherlock Holmes. And there'll be very passionate sector of Holmes readers who love that take and will want more. So he's gone, right, I'm going to go for these people. I'm going to go through the series Bible. I'm going to understand this world as much as anyone can. And so, you know, that's a lot of hard work. So once you've done all that, yeah, actually, you know, writing a series character like Holmes uh, will seem relatively easy. And I think as well, the other thing Christopher's done that's so clever is he talked about the many moods of Holmes. So, you know, he uses that very often as a jumping off point. So he might be grumpy. He might be ecstatic. He might be irritable. So what mood is Holmes in today? And I thought that's that's something that whatever you're writing, we can all take that, particularly if you're writing a series character. You know, how do they start at the beginning? What kind of mood are they in? Uh, which I thought was really cool. So, yeah, it's um, I, I suspect it's, you know, it's not easy peasy, lemon squeezy, but having done all that groundwork has really done a lot for Christopher and in, in that kind of world building and character building. Yeah, and I think it's important for new authors to remember that it's always going to be the hardest at the very beginning. Because as an author, you're not just, just discovering your voice. You're not just trying to work on your craft, but we're also trying to all work out, you know, the the processes of being an author, the things that work for us. You know, we, we obviously people listen to this podcast, they, they pick up tips, they try things out. Some of them work for them, some of them don't, because we're all unique individuals. And it's about recognizing that there are certain things that will work for you that, that might not work for others and vice versa. So part of the discovery of being a brilliant author is not just about becoming that brilliant writer or a better writer than we were yesterday, but it's also about working out your routines, working out your weaknesses, working out your habits, working out the voice in your head that's blocking you from moving forward. We all have to kind of spend time breaking through, if you like, leveling up, working through those things. Um, which we obviously spend a lot of time with people in the academy working on for that very reason, because we recognize how important that is to the success of an author. But at the same time, it gets easier the more you discover about yourself. And you only can discover that by going through the process, by writing and, and, and like learning what works for you. 
because your manual, if you like, is going to always be completely different from you know the, the writer sitting next to you. But I love it. And the other thing that um, I found interesting, again, a, a, a comment that I hadn't heard or quote I hadn't heard on the, a podcast before, is this idea about IP authors. Now, I know that's a kind of generic term used, but I'd not heard that before. And I was, I was kind of thinking back over the last couple of months, uh, even just in the last couple of months, you know, we've, we've had an author on talking about, um, you know, Agatha Christie's kind of story. And, we, and we've had, uh, thinking back now over, you know, nearly 400 episodes that we've done, there's quite a few authors that have done this. And I've never heard this term IP author. So, um, I mean, for people who are interested in getting into that, what's a good starting point for them? Well, we've got two episodes I'll direct people to. We, we interviewed uh, Kevin Scott, who writes a lot in the Star Wars universe uh, and some Marvel stuff as well, and also James Swallow, who's written Star Trek tie-ins. So I think we did a deep dive with uh, James as well. So I'll put links in the show notes to those. It's one of those things that um, when I signed up to my current agent, Ed, he did say to me, are there any IPs you want to write for? Because he could, he could, and you know, and the, the truth is, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm a big, 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 big Star Wars fan, you know, but uh, so I could probably do that. But I'm not a big enough fan of Star Trek, I don't think. But you know, there, there are people who will know everything about that, and I think Christopher, as well as being a Sherlock Holmes fan, I think he's a Doctor Who fan as well, you know. So, and it's one of those things that if you've got an agent, they can say, well, look, I'm, I've got a meeting with the Doctor Who people or the Star Trek people or whatever, and I can pitch you as a, a super fan and, um, you know, go from there. And maybe you could start writing fan fiction, you know, and uh, as long as you're not making any money from it, you should be okay, you know, just uh, putting so just it up to, online. You know. Just to clarify then, an IP author, do they actually need permission from the estate or the world that they're going to be writing in order well, to, to right, write let's, something let's, let, official. Let, let's, well, actually, is this something for the Academy? Because this is probably this sounds like a deep dive, doesn't it? <laughs> no, this is this is this is very straightforward. Look, something like uh, Sherlock Holmes. Most of Sherlock Holmes is in the public domain. Not all of it, almost all of it. So you have to be mm. a bit careful. It's all sort of seventy-five years after the author died, and some of those later stories and characters are are um, are still with the estate. Now, with Sherlock Holmes. It's probably a good idea to go to the estate or the Sherlock Holmes Society and get their approval or a pat on the head or whatever, which is what we, when we were at Orion, we did that with the Anthony Horowitz Sherlock Holmes book. So we could, we could put that stamp on and it means something to the fans. Uh, there's a lot of stuff like, for example, Winnie the Pooh has just come into the public domain and someone did a Winnie the Pooh horror movie, you know, which would have been unthinkable. Disney's lawyers would have been on you like a shot. Wow. Now, what you can't do is you can't put Winnie the Pooh in a little red. Uh, jacket because that's what he wears on Disney and you can't have Tigger yet. Tigger is still not quite in the public domain so you have to be very very careful. If you want to go back even further then there are you know the Jane Jane Austen characters are long in public domain so that's how you can do Pride and Prejudice and Zombies and stuff like that. So that right. that's stuff that's in the public domain where you can take it on um, H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds is in public domain. So you can I know you know we've had Mark Hood Mark, Mark Hood a uh, friend yeah. of the podcast has written sequels Yep, or the world. So he can do that. Um, so that's public domain stuff. Where you're talking about stuff that's licensed and copyrighted and trademarked, you know, Star Trek, Star Wars, Doctor Who, all that sort of thing, that will be heavily policed and you can't just publish those willy-nilly. But you can pitch yourself as a writer for those series. It helps if you have an agent. Um, you could do fan fiction. So long as you're not making any money from it, you should be right. It's still a bit dicey, but, you know. Uh, so there is that as well. So there's, there's kind of two sides to that. But, yeah, if you've got something that's in the public domain, fill your boots. Fascinating. Wow. When, what a great place for authors to start, I think, as well, who are, you know, if you're, if you're listening to this podcast, you've been thinking about writing a book, thinking of starting a book, and you just haven't had that right idea, um, you know, maybe it's time to start thinking about mm. some of the things you absolutely love. Because the thing that I found about Christopher is you could tell he was so incredibly passionate about the Sherlock Holmes world. And I think that's all almost a prerequisite. Yeah. You've got yeah, to yeah, absolutely yeah. be a, like, like an uber fan of that world before you start writing about Super it. So fan. Yeah, it's yeah, a yeah. great place. It's a great place to start, folks. If you're if you're struggling, make make that your first book. I mean, why not? Work for Christopher. Brilliant stuff. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Christopher, for your time on the show. 
It's absolutely brilliant. And um, we look forward as well to, to maybe having some more IP authors on the show as well, because it's kind of fun to kind of like delve into those worlds. Um, so, Mark, what is happening on social media this week? All sorts of good stuff. Well, look, our friend Andrew Chapman, you know, he wrote a book in the day, The Mask Collector. Book in the I've day. I've got my copy of The Mask Collector. Hours. Here it is. Yeah. Wow. 24 that hours. Uh, that came, that came out of him. Is that came out of us almost just some crazy off the cuff comment on this podcast and you're now holding the book in your hand that came from that from that concept that was brilliant well done andrew so uh yeah how's it how's the launch gone do you know it's gone really well he's he's done some amazing stuff like uh there's he's done an interview on youtube with the master killer it's really disturbing um, but yeah it's gone really really well i think he's getting great reviews i'm gonna try this is one of those books i'm gonna try and find time to read it the irony is it'll probably take me longer to read it than it took him to write it which will be a might be a first um <laughs> first, but yes yeah. uh, congratulations andrew mask collector is out there huge congr- congrats on that um yes other bits of social media oh there's all sorts to pick from where should we go where should we go where should we go oh now you remember um you remember we talked uh last week with uh with uh oh gosh i've forgotten the name of the author we were talking about at uh, lisa reagan and we were talking about the fact that she had that thermometer with the word count on it yes, do you remember that i do remember well one of our listeners has done it they uh kate baker uh she's gone uh i scurried off to find some version of a target thermometer that i could color in and she's done it you know she split it in half she's got uh she's done it sort of 30 34,000 words in 1k chunks and she marks them off as she goes and she's she's doing the 200 word a day challenge as well so she's already made a start on that already started filling up her thermometer and she said one extra proviso all the words logged here will be for the same project so if you've got one of those thermometers let us know folks we'd love to see them brilliant yeah or or any other tracking device i'm, I'm interested in like physical or other tracking devices that's my that's my kind of geek out <laughs> brilliant and uh yes now now you remember on the mike shackle episode you you were talking about putting rubber to the road and taking off well here's a weird thing over on patreon trey montague she got in touch in touch and she said my plane touched down at the exact moment mr d was saying this great and inspiring interview would help writers put rubber to the road and take off so it's inspired her so she's you know working on this draft of her thing as well so it's weird the way you know any other serendipitous little listening moments there let us know know oh yeah i love as well the fact that um that like trey was listening to us on a on a plane <laughs> it's like a, plane. a stellar experiment yeah, yeah, yeah. up in the air i love it just because you never think you never think about all these things like where people are i always loved with like some magazines i think maybe empire or q i think q magazine did it where they they got listeners to send a photo of them holding the magazine showing where they yeah. were listening to it maybe mark as our as our kind of next fun campaign we should get people to show us their phone uh and wherever they're listening whether so send us a photo uh, for the maybe for the, for the kind of socials of yeah, where you're listen, where where do you listen to the podcast? Is it at work? Is it in the air? Has anyone ever listened to us uh, skydiving? Maybe um, I just will if if we if you send us send us photos, <laughs> we'd love to see where you're working. And and maybe for the most the the craziest and the bizarrest and the most brilliant, you know, on top of you know Everest or something, we'll maybe uh, we'll maybe hand out a few prizes as well. So send us <laughs> send us in um, your your photos of where do you listen to the podcast? Within reason, obviously. <laughs> now, now. Finally, on this week's social media, I just want to give a shout out to Angela C. Nurse. Now, Angela has been a longtime supporter of the podcast over on Patreon and a member of the BXP group. Uh, she She's had a, a tough old time at recently. She had a hip replaced. And uh, I could talk, she's been talking about this publicly on social media. She's been very, very open about it. And, you know, this is not fun, not a fun thing having your hip replaced. Now, what's the best way to support an author? By their blooming books. Now, uh, Angela has written uh, two novels in the uh, Rowan McFarlane detective mysteries and a novella. So there's Jack in a Box, Sally in the Woods, and Discarded. If you're a fan of Marion Todd, L.J. Ross, Ellie Griffiths, Kate Ellis, you know, go for it. Absolutely go for it. These are these are great moody crime novels uh, that you are absolutely fantastic reviews. So gobble them up. Angela, we hope you are fighting fit 
real soon and our thoughts go out to you and uh hopefully you know was um we'll see a bit of a spike in sales so yeah jack in a box sally in the woods i'll put a link in the show notes so you can find them brilliant and those have got amazing covers i was checking those out the other day actually brilliant. and they look like proper like the kind of books you'd see in you know in waterstones and in your know, local local supermarkets and grocery stores Absolutely. Yeah. Angela's done a lot of it. She, I think she's on a third set of covers. She's not someone just to sit back and accept it as it is. She's done a, in, in the spirit of the bestseller experiment. She has experimented with different colors. So, uh, yeah. Brilliant. The, and best of luck yeah. with that, Angela. And, and get well soon as well. And to everyone else out there that's struggling with any any ailment or illness or uh, difficulty, you know, our heart goes out to you as well. And, uh, you know, hopefully you can get through it and, uh, you know, feel good, feel better soon for sure. Absolutely. So, folks, if you want to get in touch, drop us a line. We're at bestsellerexperiment.com. There's a contact tab there. Uh, we're also on social media, uh, Bestseller Experiment on Facebook and at Bestseller XP on Twitter and Instagram. And if you've been inspired by Christopher and the many authors we've had on the show, give us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe. Click that subscribe button. It makes all the difference. And a big thank you, as always, to our editors, Dave and JD. Absolutely. And just a couple of reminders, folks, if you would like to get the weekly newsletter from the Bestseller Experiment telling you all about uh, exciting forthcoming news and also what you will get to learn about in this week's episode, pop over to the website, bestsellerexperiment.com, click on the newsletter tab. And whilst you're there, sign up for the 200 Word Challenge or you can go to 200wordchallenge.com everyone is welcome. I think I upset a few people a couple of weeks ago, Mark, by saying that if you couldn't do 200 words a day, you shouldn't listen to the podcast. And of course, I was jesting and just kicking people up the butt who needed that. And therefore, if you're one of those people um, that does struggle with it, well, it's one of those things to try. We actually have a seven-day challenge uh, which we like people to start off with. So it's not about committing to 200 words for life. It's about just trying to start that process. So we wish everyone the best of luck with that as well. Yes. And just to say, we don't script these. With a lot of the waffle we come out, you know, we I listen back to the edit. Some of the, did we really say that? <laughs> so, you know, we don't. This is all hopping it on the wing. Oh, that's, see, that's not even a phrase, especially at the end of the show. Anything we show in the last, goes, anything yeah. we show in the last in the last 10 minutes is cobblers so it all you know, goes uh, if you've, hot doesn't it <laughs> it really does but, but i'm so I'm, it's so hot here as well i'm so is, hot I, yeah. i'm sweating like a nun awaiting the results of a pregnancy test it's so <laughs> the best thing about the end of the show though for everyone for everyone that makes it through to this part of the show firstly we salute you um because we don't think everyone, anyone really does which is why we start talking like this but secondly you get you get the best the best of the best such as mark's little joke there <laughs> I made, I, I, made that, I made that joke once on Facebook and <gasps> the comments afterwards were, is Claire pregnant? I'm like, no, oh. it's just a joke. Is Claire pregnant? Is she pregnant? No. Oh. No. And um, I've offended nuns as well. So. I've offended nuns, absolutely. <laughs> but they'll forgive you, Mark. They'll forgive you. Um, but the, the important thing to remember important thing to remember is stay to the end of the show because we're always going to do some treats for you some crazy treats like we're doing right now we used to actually do these bloopers didn't we but now we don't even bother because we just say listen to the mm. last five minutes of the podcast because it's all yeah. there it's all keep there it, keep but, it all in yeah. <clears throat> absolutely but listen if you've if you've made it this far folks if you've made it this far to the podcast i would like to make special request to all of you because people that listen to this entire podcast entirety have almost pre-selected themselves to the bestseller academy if you are willing to stay with me and mark for this long <laughs> then we'd like to invite you to apply for the bestseller academy now it is coming up to the beginning of the academic year um the academy opens a number of times throughout the year but but the beginning of September is always the biggest opening. And it's nice to kind of start, you know, you might have kids going to school and you're thinking, what about my education? What am I doing to, to kind of promote my own kind of growth and well-being within writing? So if 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 that interests you, if you'd like coaching uh, every two weeks with me and Mark and access to courses, access to an incredible community, the Academy is for you. So we'd like to invite you to come and apply. Just pop along to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. And in a few weeks, we'll be doing kind of a special episode on the podcast, um, kind of talking a bit about what the Academy is, but also focusing on some of the great people that we've got in the Academy and what they've achieved um, to kind of inspire you. But do get on the wait list because there is limited space. So academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. 
Mr. Stay, as always, it's been marvellous. I think we need to go and get a nice cool drink, uh, change our T-shirts, and um, see you very soon. Yes, so yes. please please have an amazing writing week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening into this podcast, and we look forward to welcoming you again next week with an amazing guest. All the best. It's a goodbye from Mark 1. And a goodbye from Mark 2. Goodbye! Goodbye!